Matthew 14. You got your Bibles? Matthew 14. We looked at it last week, so it should be a little familiar to you. Um, But we looked at it last week from a micro perspective. We looked at it last week from the perspective of what is Jesus doing in this moment with these disciples, right? And then what can we learn from that? And so what we talked about last week is that Jesus was, um, the the phrase that I said over and over again is is that God has already provided you with abundantly more than is necessary to do everything he's calling you to. That in the hands of Jesus, five loaves and two fish is abundantly, excessively more than is needed to feed the 5,000. And he's inviting us to be a part of what he wants to do in the world. We see this all throughout scripture over and over and over again. And we talked about, it was one of the reasons that this text was so important to the early church. In all the gospels of, uh, the four gospels that we have, the the four biographies that people write about Jesus' life, the one miraculous event in the ministry of Jesus, uh, pre-death and resurrection, that was miraculous, everyone talked about, but in the three years of his ministry, in his itinerant ministry, the one miraculous thing that was recorded in all four Gospels wasn't the raising of Lazarus, wasn't Jesus walking on water, wasn't um, raising people from the dead. It wasn't the, the things that we would probably be most concerned with think, those are amazing. Who could keep that out of the story of Jesus? But every single Gospel writer, by the inspiration of God, chose to include this story. And it's because I believe that for the early church, this was much of a mission statement for them. It told them who they were and what their job was on this earth. They were to be the ones who took the five loaves and two fish that God had trusted them, put them in Jesus' hands, and watched what Jesus could do with them, but then they were the conduits that went and fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And so today, I want to look at the story from a a more macro level, from a whole Bible story level, because Matthew includes this. Uniquely, Matthew includes certain phrases and the way he says things, because Matthew wants his readers to, he, he wants certain things in their brain to pop. He wants them to go, oh, 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 that sounds like that. Oh, I remember. Could it be? You see, all throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew has this formula where Matthew is presenting Jesus. Uh, this is going to give it away a little bit, but Matthew's presenting Jesus as a new and better Moses. So as we read through this story, I want you to see if there are some things that pop in your mind that maybe you think of, and you can think of another story or two that maybe sounds a lot like this one. Now, the, the reason that Matthew, uh, so let's look at it. Here we go. You ready? You got your Bible. Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 14, verse 15. Uh, it'll be on the screen here with you. It says this, verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate. It's an important word. See if that makes you think of any stories. Desolate place. Deserted place, desert, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves, buy food for themselves. Think if you're a Jew, first century Jew, thinking if there's a story that maybe is really important to you that you can think of where there's a lot of people in a desolate place who are hungry. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
They said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, breaking the loaves, he gave them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, one of the things we've said a lot as we're reading through the book of Matthew is, is we said that something that's really important when you're reading the book of Matthew is to remember and understand that Matthew is a, a Jew writing to a bunch of Right into a bunch of Jews. It, it changes the way we read this because if you are a Jewish person, this story sounds a lot like another story you've heard often, a story that's really important to you, a story with a bunch of people in a desert who don't have any food, and God miraculously provides them bread, and they all ate and had all that they needed. Now, Matthew just leaves us these illusions. But John, if you read John's gospel, John writes the story about Jesus' life, and he's not writing to a bunch of Jews. He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles and Greeks, right? He's, he's, he's writing to a bunch of, most of us aren't Jewish. He's writing to a lot of us kind of people, everybody else, right? And, and it's actually, it changes the way he begins his gospel in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He, he's using Greek philosophy and Greek prophecy to even show that even in all these secular things, they all point their way to Jesus. So in, in John's gospel, when he tells the story, John 6, 4, it says this, right? You see it here. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was near. Because yeah, see, John's not just like putting on the calendar so we'd remember the time of year that this thing happened. John knows the connection as well, and John wants to make sure that we don't miss it, that something that's going to go on in this feeding the 5,000 is deeply connected to this event right here, Passover. Now, Passover, you maybe have heard some about it, but Passover... Uh, I've thought a lot about it over the years, trying to figure out how to describe the significance of it. And I think for a first century Jew, maybe the best way that we could understand it is it's kind of like if you combined Fourth of July with Easter. If you had both of these things together, like Easter is like the biggest Christian celebration. It should be the biggest celebration. It is, it is the thing that makes us a people, the resurrection of Jesus, his life, that he died on the cross, but... His death apart from his resurrection is nothing, right? But that he rose from the, this, this hugely significant spiritual celebration, but also 4th of July, this very important tradition for, celebration for our nation that identifies us as a nation, as a body, as a people, right? And if you could intertwine those two is what you get for a first century Jew when it comes to Passover. It was the event that defined them as a nation, but also as a religion. The, the celebration that they would celebrate every year, it gets its name, Passover. It has a lot of other names, but in English, we most call, often call it Passover. Um, it gets its name from one of the first acts of God, of God's mercy to his people that started this whole process that we call the Exodus. So if you don't know this, Jews, before they were the Jews, they were the Hebrew people, they were a family, they were a clan, and they ended up in Egypt. And they 
were good at one of God's first commands in Genesis. You can go look it up, okay? They were good at it, and so there became a lot of them. And they became slaves in Egypt, and, and they were uh, unknown, unrecognized, uncared about. They were oppressed. They were oppressed people under the mighty, the most mighty military force the world had ever seen. And, and God hears their cries, and he sends a deliverer to them. He sends a deliverer. God's going to be the one to deliver. Don't ever confuse that. God is the one who delivers, but he sends someone to speak for him, to be his representative, and he sends Moses, and, and, and all these miraculous things happen over several years, and eventually the people of God leave. And the people of God leave because after the last curse, which is that the angel of death is going to come. The angel of death is going to come, and, and if they sacrifice a lamb and they sm smear the blood over the doorpost, the, the, um, the, the cost of judgment will go on to the lamb that was sacrificed, and that your, your family will be spared. Well, that created a whole amount of death in Egypt, but it eventually allowed the, the Pharaoh to say, leave, get out of here, and they leave, and they go through the Red Sea, and God parts the Red Sea as Pharaoh changes his mind, and the greatest army the world had ever seen at that point comes chasing down on him. God parts the Red Sea. They stand on the other side of the Red Sea, and then the waves come crashing in and drown the, the most powerful army the world had ever seen, and they end up in the desert. Now, if you end up in the desert, there are certain things that you need, Especially if you end up, if you're Moses, if you end up in that desert with hundreds of thousands of people, there's some things that you need. You don't have time to wait for like an Amazon delivery for your bottled water, right? It's the desert. Have you ever been in the desert? It's unpleasant. It's a desert. It's desolate. It's hot. And, and apart, if you've been in the desert in, in America, it's nothing compared to a Middle Eastern desert, That'll just suck you dry. And so, so, so they need something, and God provides for them. Miraculously, God provides water for them. That's amazing. Now, there's a couple things that you need. You need water, you need shelter, and you need food. Now, I've been told that you can go several days without food. I would never be so reckless or unprepared with my life that I would go several days without food. But I've been told you can. And I've been told that when you go several days without food, you can get a little irritable. Some of you know this because you've missed a meal or you have a teenager who's missed a meal, right? And you miss one meal. And I have a friend who used to, who talks about um, that you get hangry, right? It's where your hunger turns into anger and you get hangry, and you get violent. And we're going to find in Exodus, Exodus 16, if you have a Bible, you can go there. If not, it's going to be on the screen here. Exodus 16, Exodus 16, we find the people in the desert. Now, remember what we just, I mean, cursory, but years of God's provision of miraculous working in their life led to the parting of the Red Sea, to the deliverance out of an oppressive regime in Egypt, out into the wilderness. God has just given them water in the desert. They didn't go with well drilling equipment and all of a sudden tap into a well that provided them enough. God miraculously gave them water. And then immediately after, look at Exodus 16. It says this, verse 2, if you're following along. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. I just feel they're just dramatic and whiny enough that it should be read that way. 
When we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the fullness, to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> what drama! Like God just delivered them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. Oh, we're going to starve to death. Isn't it crazy? I mean, we can throw shade on the, the, the Hebrews, but isn't it crazy how quickly we forget? God just provided them water where there was no water. God provided them deliverance where there was no deliverance. God provided them freedom from oppression. And so quickly they forget. What if you brought us out here to die? We're going to starve. Right? Now, here's, here's the thing. This isn't actually even specifically about sermon, but I think it's relevant enough that we need to talk about it. There is a great risk, maybe even leading to sinfulness, when we romanticize the past. Let's look at this passage. Look at, look at it with me. Don't get nervous. Just look at the passage with me. Look at what they complain. Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. Okay, now, here we go. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Uh, factual information. Did they ever sit by pots of meat or have bread to the full when they were in Egypt? No! No! What are they talking about? What are they talking about? See, there's a great risk when we begin to romanticize. Now, there's a difference between romanticizing the past and remembering the past. And here's the difference. Because all throughout Scripture, God calls us to remember, calls us to remember, calls us to remember. In fact, later on, we're going to do communion together, and one of the great statements around communion is, do this in remembrance of me. God often calls his people to remember that he is the God who brought them out of Egypt, all this kind of stuff. But there's a difference between remembering, because you see, when we remember, what we remember is what God has done. When we romanticize, we romanticize the gifts and the blessings and the goodness of God. And when we romanticize, we're seeking the things of God rather than God. The, the, the people are seeking the pleasure and the comfort of meat. They're not seeking, they're not, they're not saying, oh, that you brought us out into the wilderness, that you've abandoned us. But in Egypt, we were so near to you. It's not what they're concerned about. We have to be very cautious because, you see, when we start romanticizing the past, here's the problem, is that when we start to romanticize the past, we start to remember things that weren't, and, and it's, it fuels in our hearts a, a discontentment. Man, if, if only things were the way they used to be. You, you, remember, you remember the good old days? Man, you remember the good old days when there wasn't all this division and instead, you know, you know, churches split up and broke apart because of important things like the color of the carpet and the shade of the curtains. You remember the good old days? Good old days. See, when we romanticize the past for something that it never was, it begins to create a discontentment in our heart that can lead us to idolatry that our true desire and purpose can be to bring back something that never was, to create something when we're pursuing the things. Look at what they, what they want. They don't want God. 
They want the things of him. They don't want his face. They don't say, oh God, that you could take us back to Egypt. When we were oppressed, we knew intimacy with you. When we were slaves, we knew that we were dependent upon you. No, God, take us back and just bless us and give us nice things. There's a great temptation of ours to romanticize the past for something it wasn't ever. And, and here's the last other big problem with that. When we romanticize the past, we miss out on what God wants to do here today. When our hearts are, are stuck to affections and desires of things of the past, God wants to do something new today. There's a passage in Scripture maybe sometime we'll teach you this book, where, where God says, um, uh, I'm doing something new, and even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And I believe that that's as true today as it was 3,000 years ago when it was written, that God is doing something today, and if our eyes are constantly turned backwards, we're going to miss seeing what God wants to do in us and through us, in our community, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families today. So we've got the story of manna, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Matthew makes sure that we see the connection between the story that looks very much like the, the story in Exodus because Jesus is the greater and new Moses. But there's another story that comes after, uh, and the feeding of the 5,000 serves as kind of a bridge, right? The beginning of the feeding of the 5,000 looks a lot like this story of the manna, right? The big crowd out in, the, out in desert and deserted places, they're hungry. God provides them. He provides them abundantly uh, uh, what they need. Everybody has enough Krispy Kreme to feed them forever, and they never get fat, right? It's the true sign that they're blessed by God. Um, scripture says that it's light and fluffy and sweet, and if you've ever had a Krispy Kreme, that is Krispy Kreme. And so um, we know that that is a sign of God's goodness to you, that you get to eat Krispy Kreme. And so we call it common grace in theology. Um, so... Uh, uh, in the wilderness, and God provides for them, looks a lot like the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's more than that. There should be another story that looks kind of like this, that maybe you think, as you hear the whole story, that maybe there's another story where Jesus says, hey, why don't you guys all sit down? And he takes a piece of bread, and he raises it up to heaven, and he blesses it, and then he breaks it, and he hands it to his disciples, that maybe there's another story that sounds really familiar. It, it's a story that we commemorate every week when we take communion. It's actually Jesus's third and final celebration of this very festival in his ministry called the Passover. And he takes this piece of bread, this piece of bread that would remind them of manna, that would remind them of God's provision, would remind them that even in the wilderness that God was sufficient, that God was always there for his people, that he was always enough, that he was always more than enough. And he would take this piece of bread and they would break it and they would pass it to one another. And they would sing songs and they'd recite scripture and they'd have these conversations, these prayers to remind themselves <clears throat> that if God can be faithful in the desert, he can be faithful in whatever we're in right now. And that's an incredibly important thing for us to remember. That if God can be the God who's faithful in the desert, he can be faithful no matter what you face today. And he takes the bread and Matthew wants us to remember and to see that what Jesus is doing in, in the feeding of the 5,000 is bigger and more important. That if God can be the one who can feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. What more can he do for you? Uh, scripture says this way, uh, God, who gave you his very own son. Just pause and think about that. God, who gave you his very 
own son. God, who gave you his only son. God, who gave you himself. What more will he not give for you? And then as we take the bread and and we eat from the bread, we remember that it's not just the man in the wilderness we remember, but now Jesus says, this is my body given for you. That for all times we remember that it's not because of manna thousands of years ago in a desert in a faraway land, but rather that God gave himself on our behalf and that he would always be enough for us. So the question is why? Why the manna? Why the feeding of the 5,000? Why the Last Supper? We see the connection between all of them. Matthew clearly wants us to see all three stories. It's very clear in his text. He wants us to see all three of them connected. He wants to see Jesus as the new Moses, the new and greater Moses. He wants us to see all that, but why? Exodus 29 uh, comes, you know, quite a bit afterwards. God's given a bunch more instruction about things that they're supposed to do and and how they're supposed to respond. But Exodus 29, verse 46, uh, it has this. It has this verse, and I think this is the why. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, you see that phrase over and again. Watch Watch for that as you read Scripture. You'll see it all the time in the Old Testament. That brought them out of the land of Egypt so that... I might dwell among them. Think about that. All that God's doing in the nation of Israel, all that God does through Jesus, so that he might dwell with us. That this is the God we worship and serve, a God who loves you so desperately that he wants to draw near to you. John says it this way in the beginning of his gospel when he's talking about Jesus. He says that he came that he might dwell amongst us. That yes, 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 one of the great promises of Scripture is that one day we will all sit at a massive, huge table, and at the head of the table will be Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will sit at the table, and we will all celebrate in this amazing, beautiful, huge feast for all of eternity But the good news of the gospel is not just that you get to leave this place and go be with God, but rather that God left his place because he wants to come and be with you. He wants to come and dwell with you. The purpose of the bread, the purpose of the manna, we see it in our Exodus passage, is not simply because people are hungry, but because Jesus comes knocking on our doors and says, hey, I want to sit at your table, and I'll bring dinner. A lot of times, I think we treat Jesus like an Uber delivery service. And when we're hungry, when we haven't planned well enough, when we you know, ran out of ideas, when we've had enough pizza, I don't know if there's a point in your life where you can have enough pizza, but when you've had enough pizza and you, you want something different and you're like, oh, you know, well, you know, COVID's a great excuse to be lazy. I'll just have someone deliver it, Right? And you order some food and it shows up at your door and the person comes knocking. If the person, if the Uber delivery or whatever service, Grubhub or whatever, knocked on your door and they're like, hey, I'm here for dinner. You'd be like, no, you're not. You're a creep. And you'd slam the door in their face. And so often we treat Jesus like a food delivery service. Hey, Jesus, life's been really hard. 
I mean, I just like, my life is like a desert. Like there's, there's so much brokenness and there's so much anger and there's so much confusion and there's so much hopelessness. I just, can, can, can you bring us dinner? Like we're really hungry. Can, can, you be a, can, you, can you come just like help us out in this moment? Oh, thanks for the delivery, but you can go on your way now. But Jesus, God's great invitation is to come into your heart, to sit at the table, to dwell with you. God's great desire. The reason he gave his son is so that he might dwell with you. That he might dwell with you. Today, The hope and the invitation is not just that God is sufficient. He is. It's what we celebrate every week. We take communion, we break it, we remember God is sufficient. He is able that even if you're in a wilderness, he is sufficient and able to provide for all of your needs. But the great news, the great rejoicing is that God wants to be with you. And hear me on this. I don't mean you collectively. I don't mean you plural. Sometimes we, we, we slough off the weight of this statement because we're like, oh yeah, God wants to be with the good people. And God wants to be with the church people. And God wants to be with people who show up on time to things. And God wants to be whatever classification you put to people. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. So my question for you today is will you allow him to come, come into your heart, sit at the head of the table, be the king of kings, be the Lord of lords, be sufficient in all ways? Because that's why he's good. That's why he gave his son. That's why the cross, that's why the resurrection, so that we might sit with our good father.